Good morning, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. This is Greg Proops from the Porpoise of Fruititude in a very rare, non-live audience situation, uh, Proopcast of the smartest man in the world. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code BOMBSHELL, that's B-O-M-B-S-H-E-L-L, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Here comes the theme song. Stand two, kittens. From high above the salubrious confines of Hollywood, where we live in a porpoise of fruititude or a fortress of pruppitude or a porpoise of snootitude, way here in Lower California in the show business district. When I say way high above, I mean metaphorically. And by metaphorically, I mean that I feel better than everyone else who's laboring down there intensively at all the studios and all the comedy clubs down below us here in Hollywood. Why, Greg? Why do you feel better than them? Because what I'm doing is morally right, and what they're doing is horrible and almost next to prostitution. But how do you count yourself out when you just read us an ad at the beginning of the show and then you're asking us to give money to different companies? Uh, understand something. Contradiction is the key to my hilarity. I don't mean that I feel better than them as an individual. What I mean is, here we go. Uh, there was no um, uh, there was no boring preachy part last week, and that was because the world has become such an awful place. And after the last few days of uh, Obama's speech and uh, Joan Rivers passing and everything going on, uh, I still feel the world is uh, full of too much pain and regret. So there will be a boring preachy part in this one, but it might be the swiftest one that you've ever... You know what? Why hip you to my game? Why let you into my catching? You just stand by out there in Poopcast land. If you're slicing open some fruit right now, slice it slower and put a little lime on it, okay? Because I think you'll find the Amazon sex it up and really make the flavor mix. And if you're rolling one, throw a little something extra into it. But I don't have anything extra. Pretend you do. It makes it funner. Use oatmeal, oregano, whatever. I Yeah, I pronounced it oregano. Pronounce words differently, and you'll find you'll have more fun. Uh, that's how that works. I've got lots of stuff I needed to cover from the last one. Uh, let's go backwards. Uh, that'll be funner. Do you want to go backwards? Yeah. Uh, Richard Attenborough is swirling up in the heavens. He's been swirling for some time now because it's been a while since we've got to him. Who was Richard Attenborough? Here, if you're under a certain age, you won't know who he was at all. If you're over a certain age, you will. How do I know this? Because I was on a show on Nickelodeon about five years ago, and there were two teenage girls on the show, and I did a joke about Richard Attenborough, and they were like, I don't even know what movie that was. What was the movie? Jurassic Park. The movie's 20 years old, so you'd have to be probably in your late 20s, early 30s to really get the joke, uh, but you might have seen it when you were a kid. They didn't, because they were busy. Their parents were driving them to rehearsal, okay? There's a reason why they didn't see anything as children. It wasn't that their childhood was horrible. It was that you weren't learning how to dance a routine when you were six years old, and they were. I want you back. So, uh, Richard Attenborough passed away. And what was the joke, Greg? It went like this. Um, not since uh, Harrison Ford. What was it? Not since Brad Pitt in um, The Devil's Own. Not since Dick Van Dyke in Mary Tyler Poppins. <laughs> Which is such a funny movie about Mary Tyler Moore and Mary Poppins being lesbian lovers on an island together. Uh, that's why it's called Mary Tyler and Poppins. Uh, 
because uh, they get a lot of things popping. Uh, not since, uh, who was it, Tommy Lee Jones and Blown Away. What we're going after here, not since Keanu Reeves and Dracula, is bad accents evocatively splashed across the silver screen. Richard Attenborough pops up in the middle of Jurassic Park, well, about 20 minutes in. And uh, it's got Sam Neill, uh, who is the famous New Zealand actor, uh, who's, uh, I don't know, what was he in, Red October? And uh, then Laura Dern, it gives you the, the year, the cast gives you an exact idea of what year it is. 1994 is the year that Laura Dern and Sam Neill were headlining. Uh, Jeff Goldblum plays the rockin' scientist who, 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 John, uh, ha, 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 the, the arrogance in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the face of nature, uh, ha. And then Richard Attenborough plays the old man who owns Jurassic Park. Well, they've given him a hat and like uh, safari pants to indicate that he lives in a jungle. And Richard Attenborough, at this point in the career, uh, had made a million movies. He'd been in a million movies. He directed and produced movies. Uh, he was doing Jurassic Park, I think, for the fun of it and for the cash of it. Um, and he goes, "Welcome to Jurassic Park," <laughs> and no one understood why. And I said, at that point, two of the dinosaurs turned, two of the raptors turned, and went, "Is that a Colombian guinea pig? What's going on over there? Why is there a man with bushy, bushy whiskers and uh, buck teeth wearing the worst pair of glasses in the history of costuming?" Portraying a billionaire who's seeded uh, dinosaurs from amber uh, uh, and used their blood to create DNA and mixed it with that of frogs to create an amusement park uh, that people could get killed at later. If you remember the kids in the movie, um, you kind of wanted them to die a little bit. I mean, not, you know, you weren't, it wasn't that you wanted children to die, but you weren't actually rooting for them. When the T-Rex came in during the SUV scene, it was pretty, the T-Rex was pretty awesome. I mean, we had the lawyer get killed, didn't we? I mean, why not just come out and say it? It's an anti-Semitic dinosaur. It ate the lawyer right off the toilet, but it let all the waspy children live so that they could have Laura Dern and Sam Neill as their waspy Scottish-Irish parents, because the point of every movie is that we're all basically Scottish-Irish, and if we're not, we need to look into it. Oh, how can you say it's just anti-Semitic? It was also a racist dinosaur because it killed Samuel Jackson, if you remember, when they find his head hanging in the bunker on the way back when they run into the boat and that character is left completely hanging by a thread in the worst piece of writing in the entire movie where Samuel Jackson's there and then they go, everybody get off the island, we've got a half hour left. Oh, coincidentally, there's a tornado and a hurricane at the same time <laughs> and coincidentally, all the dinosaurs have been sat loose at the same time and coincidentally, uh, the guy from Seinfeld uh, turns out to be an asshole, Newman. Uh, so, no, he, he's a wonderful actor, uh, Wayne, and uh, wh what's his last name? Help me. Knight. Wayne Knight. Thank you. I know. Uh, so Richard Attenborough was that character. He played John in Jurassic Park, and it wasn't his greatest role, let's be honest, but he did a lot of other marvelous things. Uh, marvelous things. And then what does she say to him? Late in the movie, they're eating ice cream that's been unfrozen because the dinosaurs are chasing everyone around, and one of the ho most horrible things about a dinosaur attack in an amusement park, aside from the children being in dire danger of being eaten uh, and having Samuel Jackson killed, is that um, the electricity fails and all that ice cream goes to waste. So you got to eat it. And so they have a scene later in the movie uh, that's one of the more meaningful scenes in the movie. And uh, Richard, uh, Richard Attenborough says, uh, And Laura Dern has a spoon in her hand and looks at him significantly over the bowl and says, Nothing matters now but the people we love. And you're like, you know, you might have thought of that a little earlier in the movie before you brought children to the dinosaur park. Because if you'd cared about the people you love, you wouldn't have put them in the way of a snackosaurus or whatever because they were snacking on all the uh, kids. During This is from, uh, I believe, the BBC. No, it might be the uh, Times. 
You know what? It's one of those English websites. Let's, let's get vague. Let's be like right-wing radio. I think I read this somewhere. I don't know if I read it, but I believe it. That's how I feel. Call it a feeling. During a career spanning 60 years, the irrepressible Richard Attenborough. He, how do you know he was irrepressible? Because anyone else would have gone, welcome to Jurassic Park. And he went, hey, come. Became one of Britain's best-known actors and directors, a man of charm, talent, and old-fashioned liberal principles. And that's what we're here to talk about today. He was an old-fashioned liberal. What do you mean old-fashioned? Well, first of all, he was 100. So uh, the era that he came from, and his parents were working class. And yes, his brother is David Attenborough, the one who did uh, The Blue World and Planet Earth, every single documentary that you've ever seen. As over the top of an actor, as Richard became uh, later in life, David Attenborough is that much of a, 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 a staid, withdrawn, scientific presence on telly. Uh, he always has a slightly tousled hair that's a little too long, like all British scientists. He's not working the I'm good looking thing. He's working the I'm the avuncular, I know everything about a, a toad that you lick the back of thing. So you'll always find him sitting next to a bunch of, uh, uh, um, what do they call them, silverback gorillas in Rwanda or out on the plains of the Serengeti near a, a spring bok or something like that or a, hy a hyrax. Or you'll find him not at all just in the voiceover and they'll just show an enormous flock of birds that clearly has five million individuals in it taking off all at once and play the noise of them flapping and he'll go, life, it dominates earth. But where does it come from? Everyone wants to be a buffalo, but no one wants to crawl out of a buffalo's arse. Tonight we explore. Uh, and so then there was one about, uh, we were watching it the other night, it was about uh, the water that was the, covers the planet, because there's a lot of water. Over 70% of the world's surface is covered with water. The other 30% is covered with lime jello with marshmallows in it. Uh, and so he never got attacked by any of the animals during his show, which is something that w people we wondered about is uh, when I lived in England, particularly people were like, how can he go stand next to a female lion on the Serengeti and go, the lioness does most of the heavy lifting where the hunting is concerned and then be like three inches from it while it's hungry. And you're like, shouldn't you give that lioness like uh, some beef jerky or whatnot? So you, get, you don't get butt munched. So that was his brother, David Attenborough. But David's still alive. Richard passed. Uh, an un apparently unquenchable appetite for doing good. Attenborough himself attributed to his upbringing in Leicester. Leicester uh, is a place in England, and it's not particularly fancy. Uh, what distinguishes Leicester now is they probably have more curry houses than any. I don't think there's another place in England that has more uh, influence of uh, Pakistani and Indian people than Lester. It's amazing. He and his brother David, the television naturalist, and John were brought up. He had another brother named John. You don't know him. Although, let's pretend we know what his voice sounds like. If Richard went, Hey, come to Jurassic Park! And David went, Welcome to Jurassic Park. Then his brother John would be like this, Hey, come to Jurassic Park! He would be Spanish and a dwarf and he would live in a box. Their father was principal of University College Leicester. So much for that working class thing I espoused. Both father and mother were Labor Party activists whose commitment e extended to adopting two Jewish refugee girls from Germany when World War II broke out. <clears throat> That's highly significant because, as you know, America and Germany, uh, or, I mean, uh, America and England didn't really jump in uh, at the beginning of the war and start uh, offering succor and uh, uh, refuge to uh, Jewish people. Attenborough inherited a belief in the importance of community and society. Apart from a brief flirtation with the Social Democrats, he was a lifelong member of the Labour Party, and his work reflected his political beliefs. Um, he made his film debut while still a drama student in 42. How about that? 
He just passed, and he was, his first movie was in the war, playing a cameo role as a cowardly young stoker on a naval destroyer in Noel Cowards in which we serve. Now, that's a very famous British World War II movie, and it's one that shows their nippy British ways and their pluck and their fortitude against Fritz and uh, everything that Jerry stood for. And Noel Coward, as you know, served with distinction uh, as an officer in the Navy. Over the next 30 years, interrupted by three years' service in the RAF, he became a star and one of Britain's most reliable character actors. His most astonishing performance was his chilling portrayal in 47 of the teenage hoodlum and murderer Pinky in Brighton Rock, which is a novel by Graham Greene. Uh, I haven't seen the picture, but my understanding is terrific in it. This you're not going to believe at all. He was part of the original cast of Agatha Christie's longest-running whodunit, The Mousetrap. If you go to London and you are ever, if you go to the Ivy, across the street from the Ivy, which is a famous restaurant there in the West End, right near Covent Garden. The theater where the mousetrap is, and the mousetrap's been playing, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 consecutive years. That's how long Richard Attenborough's been around. He was in the original cast of the mousetrap. Excuse me. Uh, He was in a fixture on a score of British television Christmases as Bartlett in the 63 prison cramp drama, The Great Escape. You may remember him as the um, efficient officer who tries to organize the escape. Who's Bartlett? It's not Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance is the one who can't see... And he's the one helping make the passports that's roommates with James Garner. And it's not James Coburn who's playing an Australian with speaking of accents. Talk about welcome to Jurassic Park. James Coburn's Australian accent in The Great Escape's like, Hello, mate. I'm from Australia. Are you going to eat at the Outback Steakhouse later on? In 64, he won the Best Actor uh, at BAFTA, that's the British Oscars, for his portrayal of the downtrodden husband, of a deranged spiritualist in seance on a wet afternoon, which is also a very good movie. Um, I love the way British papers write, and I love character descriptions. Now, were I a screenwriter, and I'm not, but if you are, think about this. When you're writing your next character, why don't you write the husband character like this? He's the downtrodden husband of a deranged spiritualist. Uh, the award recognized his performance as a martinet sergeant major facing a native uprising in guns at Batazi. Martinet means uh, they don't take no for an answer and they lord it over everyone and they uh, are horrible, um, what would you say, disciplinarians. That's what a martinet is. Parkinson to Attenborough, you were the pinup boys of 50s movies. Oh, well, that's a caption that I'm reading off the thing. His greatest skill as an actor was a sympathetic embodiment of the ordinary, though never mundane men in extraordinary circumstances. I would agree with that. There's also another picture that was made by Robert Wise in 66 called The Sand Pebbles uh, with Steve McQueen. And it's an American gunboat going up the uh, Yellow River, I think, in China. It might be the Yangtze. And they have to fight the locals. It's during kind of a, a, a feudal war that's going on in China. Everything you watch in the movie will remind you of our excursions into colonialism now. And it was, in fact, uh, supposed to be metaphorical for the Vietnam War that was going on at the time. Uh, Richard Attenborough is in that movie, and he plays one of Steve McQueen's buddies. And um, he falls in love with a, a Chinese girl um, who, who's a prostitute. And the pimp is played, I can't, if I can think of the actor's name, it played the pimp, I'll die a happy man. He's very good in the movie. And um, Richard Attenborough is one of the crew on the ship, uh, and the, the ship's called the San Pablo. And his name in the movie is Frenchie, and I think it's because he has a ginger mustache. Richard Attenborough had froggy eyes. There's no other way to describe his looks. He was froggy looking. Uh, and maybe that's why he was named Frenchie in the movie. But he has a tragic role in that one. And I think that's really the key to him is in Brighton Rock and all those pictures is he's not Denham Elliott. He doesn't have that kind of emotional resonance. But he does portray regular guys who are put upon quite well. And when he wanted to, he could be really low-key, particularly in the 50s and 60s. But that's not what we're getting at. What we're getting at is this. His greatest achievement 
Oh, he was a filmmaker with a mission, uh, believing popular cinema had the capacity to make the world a better place. Uh, well, that's a beautiful sentiment, uh, albeit uh, however naive and uh, however unattainable. Um, we've seen it time and time again where people try uh, to make popular cinema make the world a better place. And every once in a while, an American filmmaker makes a movie like uh, Schindler's List or something like that, where we're all supposed to, or even a league of their own. And I'm not being fatuous by saying that. No one had ever made a movie about women sports heroes of the World War II era before. Um, and Or a 42. A mo- we all know what, it meant, what I mean. A movie with its heart in the right place that's trying to do something big, that tries to do it on an epic scope. So therefore, what gets sacrificed in those kind of movies are uh, things like subtlety, nuance, inference, and complexity, because it's impossible to show a giant story of injustice without uh, simplifying it to cinematic um, language. Cinema is the language of, of the visual. Cinema is the language of, of jump editing. Cinema is the uh, medium of um, some dialogue, but you must show what's going on a lot of the time, whereas historical events require study and uh, actual reading and things like that. That's why, as a society, we're at this juncture of loggerheads where... On the one hand, we are immediately informed of everything that's happening in the world. People uh, tweet things or or put on Facebook things like, you know, um, I like biscuits. And so we know that immediately. Uh, And yet the complexities of uh, this next war that we're fixing to fight against the Islamic State or ISIS, as everyone insists on referring to it, as if Bob Dylan wrote the song about this group. Uh, ISIS is not to be trifled with. She was a pretty groovy god. Um, it's, it's an acronym, and we live in the world of acronyms. No one knows all the complexities behind any of the stories because we're all too busy moving on to the next story. Does anyone remember that uh, a jet was shot down in the Ukraine? What was that, a month ago? Does it seem like a year ago at this point? Um, sometimes it's important to stop and slow things down and go back and read about what's going on and then make an informed decision. Um, And I'm talking to you, everyone, and I don't mean you, the listener. I mean the Congress of the United States and the governments of the world. Because when sabers start to get rattled uh, um, and bodies start slapping, that's what happens. And we begin doing the wild thing. He was knighted for his efforts. Here we go. His greatest achievement. Who are we talking about, Greg? Richard Attenborough. Which one was he? Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Was the 1982 epic Gandhi starring Ben Kingsley as the outsider hero Really? That's who? The BBC? Who wrote this? I don't have the byline. I don't think you would call Gandhi an outsider hero. I think he would be... <sighs> Speaking of complexity, reduced down to nothing. Um, he led India on the road to liberation from the giant colonialist um, machine that had occupied uh, them for over 100 years, the Raj, which the British had brought in with the East India Company, taken over the place, taken all the money, fought a series of wars that were not fought, by the way, by the British Army, but by a private army at the behest of the British government, the East India Company, or as the soldiers called it, John Company. Um, And they kept control over the subcontinent, which now has a billion people, in those days probably half a billion people, and was absolutely, as they called it, uh, what was it, the diamond in the crown of the Empress of... uh, It was Queen Victoria's crowning achievement that she was Imperatrix of... Uh, that many people all at once. And it's because the British used military might and bought off local leaders uh, that they were able uh, to contain uh, an entire subcontinent like that. We're also talking about the nations of Bangladesh and Pakistan, which are on either side of India, which were also controlled by the English. And they fought a massive civil war after World War II to decide and divide that issue. In any case, Gandhi, 
uh, was the first one, and it was a salt march that he led, um, where he went to the poorest of the people of India, the castes. Because as you know, in India, they have a caste system. The Hindus, in particular, observe this. And there's a group called the Untouchables, and they are exactly what you think. They're a group of federal agents who are trying to run down Frank Nitty and stop all the bootlegging that's going on in the Cook County area. On December 7th, outside of Cicero, Illinois, Elliot Ness and his men went to a brewery run by Sam Nitty, the enforcer. Uh, so the untouchables were uh, a group that were beyond contempt by the rest of the population of the Hindus of India. And uh, Gandhi, after being a lawyer for the British, after uh, living and working in South Africa and being uh, raised and educated in the Raj, um, changed his mind and had an epiphany and became a, f a leader of freedom. And uh, he, uh, I think... His influence is felt most strongly in Martin Luther King, uh, Nelson Mandela, and Aung San Suu Kyi, and on all the leaders that you see around the world who invoke nonviolent protest against a giant, oppressive uh, oligarchy that seeks to uh, take away the freedom of the people. Now, Gandhi is a giant epic movie, and it starts with him as a lawyer, and uh, it goes through his, um, you know, emotional and spiritual journey, as well as that of his family and his wife, who had to really bear the brunt of all of it. And it's quite a good movie. Um, I don't know if... I, I, I wouldn't say it's hokey. I, I, I think it gets its message across quite clearly. There's other Attenborough movies that don't get it across, across as clearly. Ben, Kling, ben Kingsley's um, mother, is it? Or father is Indian. Indian heritage. So he was a very good choice to play it. And he played the part really well. And uh, Ben Kingsley's an actor of rare emotional power. He won eight Oscars, including Best Actor and Best Director. Dig this. It took Attenborough 20 years to raise the money to make the movie. He mortgaged his house. He sold possessions. He took roles in films that he described as, quote, terrible crap to help pay for what became an obsession. Along the way, he directed other films. Oh, What a Lovely War, which has John Lennon in it. Young Winston, which had Simon Ward, the late great British actor Simon Ward, and is uh, the story of Winston Churchill before he's prime minister, when he is a reporter uh, in South Africa during the Boer War. It's a very, very, it's a fun movie. It's a very fun movie. Uh, Winston Churchill's father, Lord Randolph, was British, and Winston Churchill's mother was American. Mm. You, you know, you learn so much when you listen to this show. You really do. And the war epic, A Bridge Too Far, which was the sequel, basically, to uh, The Longest Day. The Longest Day is a, a, a giant, epic uh, David O. Selznick movie from, like, 62. It's in black and white. Fantastically, it has every star in Hollywood, uh, John Wayne and Robert. M That's the one where John Wayne breaks his ankle when they jump on D-Day and uh, they pick him up and they're like, uh, Colonel, your, your ankle, you can't go on. He goes, lace it up, doc. And the doctor says, it's broken. And he goes, I said, lace it up. Um, Robert Mitchum smokes a cigar in that movie. It's quite good. Kenneth Moore is the beach master and has a dog and a shillelagh. Oh, it's worth watching. Roddy McDowell, uh, Sal Mineo, uh, a very young Sean Connery, plays an Irish uh, troupe in that movie. Um, and then there's lots of big stars like Henry Fonda and um, Eddie Albert, whatnot. Uh, it's very good. Are there any women in it? Yeah, Sophia Loren, I think, plays in The Resistance. I think they let one European woman be in the movie. As you know, World War II was won largely by a white guys named Mike. And don't think it was another way. And the Americans were led by a lot of Scottish-Irish guys named McGrew and Mulcahy, okay? Let's just get that straight before we get all sissy with the resistance and women having to be killed and whatnot. Uh, in any case, uh, he made a bridge too far, which is the story of after D-Day. They push forward, um, and uh, uh, Sean Connery's in that one as well, fantastically. And Lawrence Olivier plays uh, one of his uh, 
kind of overacting. I'm sorry to say this. God rest his soul. One of his overacting civilian characters. He, he has a mustache in it and he comes up to the, and he's always, he's terribly concerned. <laughs> um, it's, it's not, it's okay. It's in color, which uh, also it's uh, Richard Attenborough did the thing that John Huston did, which was make movies that were basically from the 40s and 50s in the 70s, which is a very funny thing, like uh, Man Who Would Be King, which we showed at the Greg Poops Film Club. And I invite you to join the Greg Poops Film Club. It's free to join. I don't know what our, what's our next episode, Ryan. Good question. You'll look it up while we're sitting here. But it's free and you can go on iTunes and uh, you can go on gregproofs.com and uh, there's an RSS feed and also SoundCloud, I find, is a very good way uh, to listen to the Greg Proofs Film Club. Tomorrow. What is it? New one coming out tomorrow. Oh, new one tomorrow. And what's the new one? Well, tomorrow meaning Tuesday next or tomorrow meaning tomorrow Friday behind Monday Friday. that we're recording on? Yeah. Okay. So by the time this comes out, this one will have been four days old. And which one is it? One of the archived ones. Well, we all look forward to that. It's as much a mystery to me as it is to you. And the entire team proofs who are gathered here in the Porpoise of Fruititude with no knowledge of the shows we're producing. It, that's got to make you feel confident. We're going to fight a war. We don't have a strategy. Wait a minute. We have a strategy. No, we don't. We have no strategy here at the Greg Poops Film Club, but we're going to show, uh, and by the time this drops, it will be tonight. So if you're listening in the morning here in L.A., come and see us tonight. We're showing uh, Harold Ramis' marvelous uh, 1994 comedy classic starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell, uh, Groundhog Day, which is a very a beautiful movie. And speaking of movies that are like wartime movies done uh, in the 90s, Groundhog Day has the plot of a 1930s movie with... Uh, you know, that, that movie could have William Powell and uh, we were saying last night, if it had been done in the 70s, it would have been like uh, Walter Matthau and, you know, uh, and who? Jane Fonda. If, if it was in the 80s, it'd be Terry Garr as, as, uh, as Andy McDowell. You know, you could have done it in any decade. Uh, in the 40s, I would have liked to think it would have been like someone really cute, like Joel McRae and Veronica Lake or something, you know. Although Joel McRae's not very crabby. Probably would have been <coughs> funnier in the 40s with Spencer Tracy, yeah. If it was a Spencer Tracy movie, he could have done it. Because you could see him being furious at the world that he has the same fate each day. And then later, hello, everybody. Wait a minute, everyone in the town loves you. Wait a minute, did you just give away the plot to Groundhog Day? Uh, in any case, um, Richard Attenborough sacrificed quite a lot to make Gandhi. And then he did the musical chorus line, which is, I think... Not a winner. He's, he's passed now, so let's just let him off the hook for it. Here, here's a line read by Michael Douglas as the character Zack in the movie Chorus Line. Damn it, Cassie, what are you doing here? You're too good. Uh, it's not good. There's, there's, a, there, there's a song. Chorus Line is a wonderful musical. And Michael Bennett, oh, God rest his soul, who passed away of AIDS, wrote it. And it's a fabulous musical. If Troy Donahue can be a movie star, then I can be a movie star. Um... The scene at the ballet, which is a beautiful scene on stage, um, and all the girls dance in a ballet and they drop down the bar and they show the mirrors and everything, is basically static in his movie version. Like, you kind of like, Richard, you, have a drink. Loosen the camera up. Go watch a Vincent Minnelli movie. Go watch a Stanley Down and Gene Kelly movie. Go watch a Busby Berkeley movie. And then get back to me when you got the whole idea that we need to see them dance. It's called Chorus Line. Dance, God damn it, dance. Bob Fosse even. Even though Bob Fosse would be shooting up their underwear the whole fucking movie, he would have shot a better version. <laughs> Chorus Line would have been sleazier for one thing. Tits and ass would have been 18 minutes long. Um, but at least Bob Fosse let you see them dance, baby. No one remembers Cabaret or uh, uh, 
uh, Sweet Charity. I mean, how much did you get to see Shirley MacLaine dance in that movie, right? That's what you want. Uh, it's what you need. Now, after Gandhi came his adaptation of Course Line, and then Cry Freedom. Now, that was the one I wanted to talk about. Cry Freedom uh, has Kevin Klein in it. It's about a white author from South Africa who has to make an escape because uh, he's helping people. And he befriends Stephen Biko, the freedom fighter, uh, or as I guess the BBC would have called him, a, a, an outsider hero uh, who was killed by the South African government. Uh, he was put in incarceration and killed while incarcerated for being um, black. And uh, uh, Denzel Washington plays uh, Stephen Biko in that movie. And I went to see it, I remember, with my buddy Warren Thomas, uh, who was, uh, happened to be black. And uh, we watched the movie, and at the end of it, uh, we turned to each other. And I, I forget where we were. Maybe even at the Beverly Center movie theater, which isn't there anymore. There were six of them. And he goes, well, what did you think, Greg? And I went, rather broad strokes. <laughs> because halfway through the movie, Stephen Biko dies in prison. And then the other half of the movie is about Kevin Klein, who's doing a very, very good South African accent. It has to be said. South African accents are toughy. People don't, you know, it's, it's a tough accent because they, they have the, they, the blocks of the potato whip. You know, I, I, don't, I can't even do it. It's really, it's, uh, English people look down on it, of course. But English people look down on everything, for God's sakes. This is what they think I sound like. Can you imagine? Uh... And, and he's quite good in the movie, Kevin Klein, but it turns into the white guy story, which is a huge shift because the first hour of the movie, you're in the townships and it's all about Soweto and it's all about the politics. And then all of a sudden it's, will the white guy escape? Uh, so it's two separate movies. It's one about Stephen Biko and then it's a Mission Impossible episode. Uh, in any case, uh, it's, it's worthy, as I say. Uh, Cry Freedom was a box office and critical success. It was anti-racist, anti-imperialist, and impeccably liberal, as well as a strong, eminently watchable drama. Mm. Both films, eminently watchable is probably a good way to put it. Uh, I wouldn't say eminently watchable. I'd say watchable. I was pretty high, so I, you know, but I definitely like the first part better than the second part. I don't want to spoil the end of Gandhi for anyone, but it does not end well. Some of his films were flops. His biopic, Charlie Chaplin, failed to make money. All right. I saw Charlie Chaplin, and um, I think it was called just Chaplin, wasn't it? Um, Robert Downey Jr. is way too young to play Chaplin in the movie, but it's terrific. And I remember this during the drug years, by the way. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. is, is really sensation in the movie. And um, it, it, I think you're, taking, you're biting off more than you can chew. When you make a biopic, and we've said this before on the show, and we'll say it again, and we're going to say it right now. When you do, he does Gandhi, it's really this comprehensive scope of Gandhi's life. When he did Chaplin, it's the comprehensive scope from his upbringings in the East End of London and his poor family to becoming the biggest star in the world to uh, you know, being chased down by the anti-communists in this country to his fixation on younger women to the whole enchilada right, with Chaplin. And in the meantime, you're supposed to somehow show that he's an artistic comedy genius who invented cinema with four other people. So how do you do that in a movie? You don't. And that's where I think uh, Chaplin comes up a little... Lords of Arabia is not a great movie, as we've discussed. The first half is transcendental because you're on the hero's journey. And he has to go through the horrible desert ride. And then they, when they uh, win in Aqaba, then he goes back to the headquarters. Then you find out what everyone's made of. That he's going to go back, that he's a self-aggrandizing, sadistic masochist. And that the British high command is willing to do anything in order to subdue the Arab rebellion and make sure their own ends are met. Uh, which we're still fighting over today, by the way. This Islamic State thing, you can take right back to fucking 1914 in the Balfour Declaration. And a lot, having said that, uh, the movie Patton, which is not exactly a literal biopic of George S. Patton, 
works because you pick him up when the war's already begun and it's only his part in the war. So it only the whole scope of the movie is maybe two or three years and then they stop before he dies. So at least he's still alive when the movie's ending and he gives himself a caution at the very end. So that's called screenwriting. A movie like Great Balls of Fire, which has <laughs> the story of Jerry Lee Lewis, it, you, you can't cover every moment in someone's life. I say pick an episode. Um, I did not love the movie Gods and Monsters. I mean, I thought uh, um, uh, Lynn Redgrave was superb in it, and I thought um, Ian McKellen was fantastic. It's a movie about a, a gay director who has uh, worked in England and in Hollywood named James Whale. His two most famous pictures are Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein. And Bride of Frankenstein is the one that everybody actually thinks is Frankenstein. It has all the riffs about throwing the girl in the well and the, the big machines that are in the operating room and Elsa Lanchester with the great hair and everything like that. Well, James Whale was kind of openly queer and it really hurt his career. Gods and Monsters, the merit of the movie is it finds him later in the career and focuses on a specific couple of months in his... Is that my phone? Uh, that's the problem with a movie like Chopin. Anyway, uh, it's, it's, that one's worth watching if only you want to see that. Uh, so he then, he, uh, late in life, Attenborough resumed his own acting career in Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Oh, it was 93, not 94. Uh, then he did a Miracle on 34th Street, the remake. Pardon me, the remake. He was also one of the most active public figures. His vast entry in Who's Who, 30 more organizations, director, trustee, fellow chairman, or president. <sighs> this is my favorite story. He called everyone darling. When we lived in England in the 90s, Richard Attenborough was known as Levy Number 1. A actors are levies, and it's because they call you Levy and Darling. This is the story for me that's Richard Attenborough in a nutshell. At a Downing Street seminar in the 1980s on the parlous state of the British film industry, perilous state, I believe the word is supposed to be, the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher expressed deep concern. Why wasn't I told, she asked, about how precarious the state of British film was. And this is the best thing Richard Attenborough ever said. Darling, you never asked. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, he, uh, he lost um, a grandchildren in the uh, tsunami as well. His 14-year-old granddaughter and his daughter and her mother-in-law. Uh, so he had some horrible tragedy in his life. Anyway, Richard Attenborough swirling in the heavens. He was a right guy. And uh, he certainly deserved all of the honors that he received. And his brother is also a right guy. I can't speak for the other brother, but I'm assuming he's a right guy as well. Uh, this was sent to me by Ian Spark. If you want to write us, you can write us at uh, smartestatofspecialthing.com. Uh, Fanmailforgreg at gmail.com is the one I answer. I don't, are we going to have any questions uh, coming up? Did anyone write you lately? Let me know. All right. At com, Ryan compiles them. Fanmailforgreg at gmail.com is the one I answer. This came to me over that one. It's from Ian. Ian's written this many times. Ian Spark. Uh, you may recognize him as a frequent writer and listener to the show. Um, he wrote me because uh, we're always talking about David Bowie. And last year we did a uh, – we went and saw the David Bowie Is exhibit in London, uh, which was at the uh, Victoria and Albert – no, it wasn't. It was at the what, – what museum was it at? The V&A? Yes. Oh, it was at the V&A. It was at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And – uh, we, we talked about it on the show. So the, the, finally, it's getting all around and it's coming to Chicago, the David Bowie Is uh, exhibit. Um, and this is what he sent me. It's from the Eater column or the Eater blog um, from Chicago. David Bowie themed menu heading to MCA on September 23rd. Yes, thank you for laughing. I think it's funny too. First of all, David Bowie didn't eat for the whole prime of his career. From the, the best part of his career, which is really what? From about 72 to about 78. 
I think what 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 did one magazine refer Mojo said the feedings took place at three a.m. For a long time, he was a drug addict and did heroin and coke and whatnot. And I think was eating a quart of ice cream. That was like his sole sustenance for ages and ages. There's a movie called Five Years. And if you watch that, there's a scene where he's driving along in the back of a limo and he's drinking a quart of milk. And that's the only sustenance you see him take aside from cigarettes in the whole movie. And you also get to see him arrange young Americans with Luther Vandross and uh, go through. It's, a, it's quite a good movie. If you want to like David Bowie, it's an interesting movie because it kind of shows... Uh, his pretentious side as well as the amazingly fertile creative period that he was uh, king rock star during that period. David Bowie fans will be soon be able to channel their inner Ziggy Stardust. I didn't write this, by the way. I want you to know Eater wrote this. First of all, they call themselves Eater, which reminds me of the Johnny Hart joke. Uh, Johnny Hart wrote the comic strip BC and the Wizard of Id. And uh, in the BC, if you remember, they were sardonic cavemen. And there's an anteater. And one of them says... What do we call this animal, one of the cavemen? And the other one says, what's its chief characteristic? And the other one says, it eats ants. And he says, let's call it an eat anter. And to me, that's what this blog is like. Eater? Really? No, eaten. We have eaten. Let's eat. Something. Eater? Yuck. Eater. You eat her. You brought her. You eat her. You eat her. I haven't even met her. You eat her. Okay, eater. Chowhound is even funnier, even though it makes me think that you got a bib on, which is kind of freaky. Uh, David Bowie fans will soon be able to channel their inner Ziggy Stardust. You don't have an inner Ziggy Stardust, okay? I'm sorry. He had an inner Ziggy Stardust. And it was a made-up character, by the way. If there is a 101-pound English 5'6 post-war guy inside you, I want to know about it. And then I want to know how much eating that's going to happen after that. Uh, newest exhibit, David Bowie is, which will feature a Bowie-themed menu at the accompanying Puck's Cafe. Uh, starting September 23rd and running until Jan 4th, Chicagoans can marvel at a retrospective of the famous English musician's career. You know what? I'm going to amend that. You can react however you like to the retrospective of the English musician and actor's career. Uh, I don't think you have to marvel at it. I think you could stand in stone, solid, sullen judgment if you would. I mean, really marvel? <gasps> Some of it's marvelous, but marvel's a pretty big word. A famous English musician. Oh, they didn't call him an actor. I did. And chow down on Bowie-inspired bites at Pucks. The special menu will be available, and this is what I love, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays from 4 p.m. till closing. Why am I giving Pucks this much play is the question. And why are the hours so goddamn specific? If you were a David Bowie, wow, wouldn't you just fucking serve the meal any old time? Looked a lot like Che Guevara. Drove a diesel van. The menu starts at four o'clock. No sooner than. Uh, Ziggy Stardust Schmaltz, an assortment of cheeses, pickled beech mushrooms, candied cashews, and grilled baguette. Schmaltz? Possibly the least Yiddish of all the. Although he does say uh, at the end of um, Suffragette City, hoo ha. Uh, modern love is smoked tofu and grapefruit salad. Ooch. Smoked tofu. Barf. Uh, and Starman wings, boneless fried chicken are a few of the options. While bartenders will prepare them libations like rock and roll suicide, you always want the word suicide in a cocktail you're going to slam down. Oh. Uh, what is it? Time pulls on your finger, and then another finger. You're rocking. 
uh, red pop rocks, white rum, lemonade, raspberry puree, and raspberry, and then diabetes. Wow, that's a lot of sugar. Red pop rocks? What are you, nine? How about just drink? Uh, check out the full menu below. Okay, I will. Uh, and ready to get your get your glam and glitz get your glitz and glam on face paint. Not required. I have a copy of the menu here that I've printed out. I'd like to read you some of the items on the menu. The writing's very small, so I'm going to take my glasses off. Bowie-inspired dishes, themed cocktails prepared by a mixologist, and a live DJ are some of the features that will make your MCA visit one to remember. Remember, it's only four to eight Tuesdays. Jesus Christ. The Thin White Duke. Now, The Thin White Duke is my favorite album, too. I think that's a Station to Station, and that was when he was real high. And uh, Carlos Alomar and, um, oh, golly, who's the other guitar player on that album? Um, it's really good. And um, that one has a... The return of the Thin White Duke Throwing darts in lovers' eyes. Here are we. It's only 3.30. We can't get a table. Wolfgang Puck flatbread. Oh, fuck you, Wolfgang Puck. <laughs> fuck and then you. Puck you, Wolfgang Puck. The Wolfgang Puck at Terminal uh, 2 at LAX is the worst goddamn restaurant in the entire fucking airport. I'm going to make you eat there, Wolfgang Puck. And then we can talk about your goddamn flatbread. Fontina and mozzarella, confit garlic, roasted tomato, cracked black pepper, and arugula salad. That has nothing to do with David Bowie. I would say a rail, um, some cuvazier, and draw a sketch of John Lennon, and then have sex with a black prostitute. That would be the thin white duke period, okay? And then move to Berlin and shoot heroin in your eyeball and try to have sex with Iggy Pop's area. Rebel Rebel Roughage. Fuck you. That's a terrible name for a dish. Rebels don't need roughage. Rebels just need cookies and booze out of a bottle. And speed. Baby romaine and frisee salad. Fried manchego and crispy carrot nest. Tossed in a balsamic vinaigrette. Barf. Modern love. We've already gone after that one. The Goblin King favors. You remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? <laughs> the the power. I've made myself hysterical with how bad this comedy is. <laughs> Remind me of the babe. Beef slider. Gross. The Goblin King didn't eat beef slide. He didn't eat beef sliders. I saw the movie. With aged cheddar and remoulade. Chicken slider with bacon and onion jam. What the fuck is a chicken slider? That's, those are illegal. Isn't that what killed all those people in that explosion? Cat people. Really? Yellowfin, tuna tartare, sesame chips, ponzu, and a deviled quail egg. That's cat people? <laughs> Wasn't that the one? Putting out fire with gasoline. Putting out fire. Gasoline. Early 80s, kind of cokey, groovy haircut, weird members only kind of period for Bowie. We've discussed Paul Schrader's Cat People on the movie and the show. Um, we're not going to show it at the film club. We don't, in fact, we never know what we're going to show, evidently. We know what we're going to show. We just don't know what we're going to broadcast. The original Cat People is Val Luton, Jock Turnier. I can't remember. Jock Turnier, maybe. That one's worth it. Then there's one called Golden Years. Seared diver scallops, crispy polenta cake, yellow tomato jam, and shellfish consomme. Don't let me hear you save lives. Not giving you seafood. Angel! 
<laughs> Look at those scallops, life's begun. I tell warm the consumers. Wow. I think we've beaten that one into the ground. Let's see, what else do we have here? Uh, thank you, Ian. And uh, Ian, Ian asked for the cat people. Ian asked for the cat people uh, dish is what he wanted. Um, we're getting, we'll get to that. It's coming. We haven't even got to the boring preacher part, but soon we will. Uh, let's see here. This is from today's Daily Mail. Um, when I say today, I mean today, not the day you're listening. This is before you listened. Lips like Jagger. I, why did you pick the Daily Mail for this one, Greg? Because their writing is so shockingly awful. That's why. This article is a scientific article about an actual discovery that's been made, but they're attaching it to a pop star. So like going to brunch or rather early dinner at four o'clock because we're getting the early bird David Bowie Golden Years retirement special. uh, The Daily Mail really doesn't write. You could read the Scientific American if you like, but I prefer the Daily Mail. Lips like Jagger, says the headline. Ancient swamp pig with huge pout named after Rolling Stone frontman. Ancient swamp pig. You know, I've often gone by that title myself as the years have rolled by. I'm an ancient swamp pig myself. A skinny prehistoric swamp dwelling pig that may not have moved like Jagger, but definitely had lips like the iconic Stones frontman, has been discovered and named after Sir Mick. I didn't even know where to begin with that opening sentence. A skinny prehistoric swamp dwelling pig. Was it one that wore an American flag hat and went, welcome to the breakfast show? Uh, 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 uh. Really? Uh, it almost certainly definitely had lips. This is the Daily Mail. That's your go-to for prehistoric swamp pig facts. Fossils of the so-called Yagermerix naida, which lived 19 million years ago, reveal... So Mick was born right at the end of its reign. <laughs> I can't breathe. Had a humongous pout, just like the Satisfaction Singer. Wow. The Daily Mail had to go back to satisfaction to identify him. Identified as a separate species by huge Rolling Stones fan Ellen Miller of Wake Forest University, the tiny swamp creature's Latin name translates to the justly appropriate Jagger's Water Nymph. That's what a naida is. Uh, some of my colleagues suggested naming the new species after Hollywood star Angelina Jolie because she also has famous lips. <laughs> but for me, this is a scientist, by the way. <laughs> Or is this the person discussing the menu for Wolfgang Puck's cafe? Uh, you know, do some pork clips, whatnot. But for me, it had to be Mick, said Miller. Uh, the lower jawbone of Jager Matrix Naida has several small holes roughly where the chin and lower lips would be located. By the way, that's how they extrapolated that it had big lips. This is my favorite sentence in the history of journalism up to this point in my life so far. Listen closely. However... Unlike the notorious 71-year-old womanizer, his swamp pig namesake would spend its days foraging for food with its sensitive lips, not belting out rock classics. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. 19 million years ago, fucking, I take you back to the Cretaceous period. You just, you hear giant dragonflies the size of water wheels whizzing through the air. And then snuffling and foraging uh, through the jungle. And then all of a sudden you hear, I'm so hot for her. I'm so hot for her, but she's so cold. 
Thank God we know the difference. Uh, that it wasn't belting out rock classics. It may have been used. It may have used its sensitive snout to forage along riverbanks, scooping up plants with its lower teeth and large lips, around the size of a modern deer. Jesus Christ, that's a big pig. That's good eating. There was no people 19 million years ago, so don't think they're going to make a movie about it. It had eight holes, blah, blah, blah. The fossil was discovered in Egypt, which would have been a lush and tropical delta then. This is the second animal named after Mick Jagger. He has a trilobite fossil named after him, Agricotellus jaggeri, as does his partner in crime, Keith Richards, whose trilobite is named Perirhydilus richardsi. Uh, wow, there's no fair saying whether they'll be doing a benefit concert for the pig at any point. Let's talk about Joan Rivers. I've mentioned her before on the show. I think I've told a few jokes before. I wanted to tell a couple of stories. Um, I really loved her, and she was a beautiful person, and so is her daughter, Melissa. And everyone can climb off her ass and off Melissa's ass and off everyone's dick involved with the entire thing. Oh, she had her face down a whole bunch of times. Oh, um, she made fun of people. Oh, she was mean and caustic. Guess what? She was a comedian who told it like it was. She had her own cross to be. And there's no other man that's in her category that made it to 81 years old that was as vital as she was. Let's look at it empirically, shall we? She had two television programs and a web show at 81 years old. Um, she, she trended on Twitter for days after her passing. Young people know who she is. She kept abreast of the times. That's being in the center of comedy. She was on Louis C.K.'s show. She had Sarah Silverman on her on the bed show. She was all up in it. Um, you can't say the same thing about Woody Allen, can you? Or Bill Cosby, who are about the same age as her and contemporaries. You can't say it about Jackie Mason or Mort Saul. I'm not diminishing these other people's work. I'm just saying, if she was a man and she was an 81-year-old man and was butt ugly, like most 81-year-old men tend to be about that point when they're comedians, um, you wouldn't hear about that. But because she was a woman, there was a lot of gib-gab and chit-chat about all the operations she had. Obviously, that was her issue and something she had to deal with. Secondly, I knew her personally, Horatio, and she was a lovely person. Um, Melissa and her were never anything but fantastic to me and generous in every sense, a, a comedic sense and in a professional sense sense. How did you know her, Greg? I did the 2007 awards uh, season with her and Melissa on the TV Guide channel. And I also did the Oscars with Melissa in 2006. And Joan was there for all of that. Um, as my friend Jeff Felton so viciously said to me, God rest his soul, he's passed away now. I told him I was going to be doing the Oscars with Melissa and Joan on the TV Guide channel. And he said, really? Are you going to be on the whole screen? The TV Guide channel used to just show a corner, and then the rest of it was a scroll saying, Emerald Lagasse tonight, cooking a shrimp. Tonight on the menu, Jagari Pig, 19-million-old recipe found in the David Bowie menu at Pox, available only after four. Sizzler. Uh, in any case, here's my, here's my two stories. She massacred everyone's name that year. It was 2007, and a lot of Latin directors were nominated for Best Director. She simply, either she couldn't be bothered or whatever, and I never called her by her real name or Melissa uh, when we would throw it to each other. I'd go, Jane, Melora, the scene here is one of intense excitement. <laughs> And she never stopped me. She never stopped me from doing that or anything like that. Um, uh, Ringo Kikuchi was nominated for an Oscar that year. I don't remember what she called her, but it was like, Ringo Kikuchi. She literally couldn't be bothered to fucking pronounce anyone's name correctly. And that made me cry laughing. Um, 
So my wife and I are in London several years ago, and we're having dinner at a place called the Wolseley, which is a fancy show business place. Joan Rivers is sitting across from us with two English guys. We sit down, and I says to my wife, look, there's Joan. We'll wait till she's done, uh, and then we'll say something to her, right? So she gets up uh, from dinner, and uh, I don't know how well she was seeing or hearing. In any case, I don't see that well at all. I got up, and I grabbed her, and I went, Joan, it's me, Greg. Can you see me? And she went, fuck you. And then we chatted and then she split and we were sitting there and we ordered dessert. And when the check came, the waiter came over and said, Miss Rivers bought dessert for you. So I always have a warm, warm place in my heart for her. Um, She only made comedy better. You can't imagine what she had to go through as a woman comedian coming up in the 50s. When she joined Second City, uh, it was very tough for her. That was in the late 50s. When she first started doing stand-up in New York uh, and she was going by Pepper January, uh, calling herself Comedy with Spice, she had to do all that self-demigrating, I can't get a man humor to begin with. Then... Her friendship with Lenny Bruce, and when she met Lenny Bruce, he really encouraged her to be honest. So in a lot of ways, look at it this way, you guys. She's a disciple and descendant of that style of comedy. Is she Lenny Bruce? No. She's Lenny Bruce... Uh, without the Lenny Bruce. She's honest in her own way about her own experience. Um, Was it there to empower everything uh, you agree with? Was every one of her opinions something you have to embrace and agree with in order to enjoy her? No. As I so often say on this show, the most rewarding messages I get, aside from all of the lovely ones that people write me and say, I like your show and thank you for doing it, are the ones where people say, I disagree with everything you say on the show and I still like the show. And that's how, if you have uh, objections or or take exception to things Joan Rivers said over the years, uh, look at it that way. Free your mind. Uh, Open up your mind and realize that Joan Rivers felt, maybe more than any other comic, vehemently in the cathartic power of comedy. She had a lot of tragedy happen in her life, and she always made fun of herself as well. Well, that's just an excuse because of the nasty things she said about, fuck you, okay, and shut up. Those are my two instructions to you. I got in a fight a couple of weeks ago in Toronto with a douchebag who sat down in the front row with me, and he was a dude, and he was wearing a baseball cap, and he really wanted to take me on, and I started to lose my rag on him, and then eventually I gave him his money, and he fucked off, and he was beneath contempt for me, and I don't even bring him up except for this reason. After Joan passed away, my wife sent me a video of Joan uh, in, in the movie, a documentary about her from a couple of years ago. And a guy heckles her because she said, I would have loved to have, I would have, loved to have Helen Keller for a child because she couldn't talk, which is a great joke, right? On a, a thousand different levels. One, it's a great Helen Keller joke. Two, it's a great joke about having children. Three, it's just a great joke. A guy in the crowd yells out, I have a deaf kid. That's not funny. And she goes, hey, you dumbass. Comedy is about this and that. It's about taking tragedy on, head on, making a joke out of it. And then she gets in the car afterwards. She's getting in. The, first of all, she comes off the stage and the orchestra's playing. And it took me ages to figure out that's the theme to Bridge on the River Kwai. That was the song they were playing when Joan got off stage. She gets in the, in the car and she says, I felt bad about the guy who had the deaf kid, but maybe he had catharsis. And that's where I'm coming from as a comedian. I don't want you to agree with me all the time. In fact, I would feel bad if you agreed with me all the time. I don't even want you to think I'm funny all the time. I want you to be able to appreciate what we're doing and that I'm trying to come at you with some measure of honesty. And I think that's what Joan Rivers did, as I say, almost better than anyone else. When you'd see her make fun of people on the, on the red carpet and say, oh my God, that dress looked like a thousand angry vaginas coming at you. Um, 
men are always allowed to talk about their genitalia and men are always allowed to diffuse a situation by using comedy uh, to explode things. Men are allowed to destroy such a situations. Men are allowed to make rape jokes. Men are allowed to do everything uh, in order to get comedy across. But women are still held on a short tether. The reason why we have Roseanne Barr, the reason why we have uh, 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 Sarah Silverman or whomever you can think of, uh, Jen Kirkman, Janine Garofalo, is because uh, Joan Rivers uh, stood up so fucking tall and came back a thousand times, never let anyone get her down. Um, she was crushed by show business on a pariah many times. And her enormous strength, resolve, backbone, beauty, grace, glamour, uh, wit, and genuine fucking feeling makes her rise to the very, very top of the pantheon of comics as far as I'm concerned. Robin Williams was a genius and, and uh, gave me absolute uh, paroxysms of mirth. Jonathan Winters might be one of my favorite comedians of all time and maybe the greatest improviser that ever strode on the fucking stage. Um, Louis C.K. is a modern marvel who takes on a lot of very difficult material and confronts it in an extraordinarily honest and beautiful way. Lily Tomlin was a comic who was able to artfully and using characters uh, go around gigantic issues that were important to us all, the meaning of life, art, identity, things like that. Joan Rivers belongs at the very fucking top of the Mount Olympus of comedy for all of the reasons I've just stated. She is ear-re-fucking-placeable. If you disagreed with her on politics, good for you. It shows you have an active and agile mind and you're able to hold two thoughts uh, that are contrary simultaneously and still be able to understand that one thing doesn't preclude the other. Having said that, uh, I will miss her uh, very much so. And I think every comic, uh, we've, already, we've already had everyone weigh in on it on Earth. That's why I was sort of hesitant to even bring this up. But now I'm not because I feel like, if anything, she doesn't get enough credit. I'm currently working on a documentary on Bob Hope, uh, who passed away some 20 years ago or more. And uh, Bob Hope, when he was alive, was maybe the most famous entertainer in the world for a, a good long time. Certainly in the 40s and 50s, the most famous comedian in the world. And this means his career went from vaudeville all the way to the period of Richard Pryor and Bill Hicks. He lived that long and he performed that long. I just did an interview with Margaret Cho last week. Margaret Cho did a Bob Hope special. That's what we're talking about here. Margaret Cho said to me, he did gigs uh, with them. Um, uh, oh, golly, I've just blanked on her name. Uh, the dancer who moved to Paris, who had the large family. Yeah, with Josephine Baker. Bob Hope did gigs with Josephine Baker, and there she was doing a gig with Bob Hope. And that's what some 60, 70 years of show business we're talking about here. Joan Rivers goes back to the 50s. Uh, my point is this. No one remembers Bob Hope anymore. He's not been exhumed culturally. He hasn't even had... A, 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 what do they call it when they go back and they, they haven't had a, 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 a reflexive look at him. No one's gone back and looked at all of his movies. No one's gone back and looked at all of his stand-up and thought about how much he meant it to us as a, as a comic, as an entity, as a performer, as an entertainer. The thing that the most, uh, going, having interviewed all these people and not to blow the premise of the Bob Hope documentary out of the water is this. In the end, it's not Bob Hope's comedy, although Woody Allen is heavily influenced by Bob Hope's comedy and Bob Hope's comic persona of the weaselly coward uh, who had snarky things to say, uh, but was always gentle toward corporations is not his lasting legacy as a comic. His lasting legacy is, uh, and I believe Margaret Cho put it best, um, now you see performers like Jay-Z or uh, Kanye or Taylor Swift or whoever get up and incorporate the name of the fucking cell phone right into their show or it's Budweiser presents so-and-so whatever that's what Bob Hope did more than anyone he would come on the air and go hi this is Bob Texaco Hope this is Bob Pepsodent Hope he put the name of the sponsor in his name and 
He's the person who put that forward. That, I think, might be what he's known for, uh, sadly, until he gets revisited and everyone starts to bring the 40s movies back out and the road movies and some of his other brilliant movies like Monsieur Bouquet and whatnot. Joan Rivers doesn't need to go through that. She already encapsulated the modern age by being a talk show host, by having a period where she sucked up to the rich in the 80s, by going through a period where her career was devastated and she was a pariah in the late 80s and early 90s, by coming out of the ashes of that and embracing the uh, culture that we live in now, the celebrity culture, the trendy culture, the fashion culture. Do you remember a red carpet before Joan Rivers? Let me put it to you that way. Do you remember anyone saying, who are you wearing? Do you remember the evening and all of that? That the focus on the fashion and what people were wearing in the fun of the night became the focus as opposed to the fakery, jack and apery and total fucking fixation that uh, show business has with giving itself awards as voted by a very few people to some white guys, which is what all these fucking award show boil down to. <laughs> the fun of any of these award show is what Joan Rivers has left us, which is look at those shoes. And I can't believe the earrings you've got on. And why the fuck are you wearing an, Af an outfit? I was going to say an apricot. Why are you wearing an apricot? <laughs> that looks like a thousand vaginas that are angry attacking you. That is her legacy. And I think uh, it's irrevocable, irreplaceable. And she is not just swirling in the heavens. She is the stars glittering in the heavens uh, as we speak. Um, this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website portfolio and online store. It's simple and it's easy, much like me. Uh, it's, it's easy to use and, uh, and not very difficult at all. And that's coming from me. And I can't operate uh, this piece of paper that I'm holding, much less uh, a technical thing like a computer. It's got drag and drop content and every site comes with an online store. Plans start at $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And you do want to get your own domain name because um, I've lost a few over my over the years. I've got gregproops.com, but I don't have um, gregproopshungwarlord.com. So you can see where this would come in handy. Start with a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to go to squarespace.com and use the offer code BOMBSHELL to get 10% off. And to show your support for the Proopcast, uh, I need vodka. I am thirsty. We thank Squarespace for their support of the Smartest Man in the World podcast. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. Uh, thank you for listening to that part. We're going to be in all these places coming up, and I need you to come and visit us. At the end of this week, we'll be at Good Nights in Raleigh, North Carolina. They're under new ownership, so I'm looking very much forward to that. It's the people who own the Helium and Portland and Buffalo and Philadelphia IA, and I've had great gigs at the Portland and Philadelphia IA um, Helium, so I hope you'll come out and visit us. We'll be there um, the 18th through the 20th of September at Good Nights in the PhD Triangle in Raleigh, North Carolina, right next door to the Shit Kicker Bar. That's how you'll find us. Uh, on the 19th of October... Oh, well, I've got lots of other dates here. We're on the road with the uh, boys. Uh, when I say the boys, I mean the men. And when I see the men, I mean the Antique Roadshow. And when I see the Antique Roadshow, I mean Ryan Stiles, the tall one, Jeff Davis, uh, the dashing one, who you know from Harmontown, and Joel Murray, has you, who you know from Mad Men and One Crazy Summer. And uh, we're in a foursome together, and we do improv. We're going to be uh, in Salem, Oregon on October 9th. And October 11th, we're going to be at the Moore Theater in Seattle in November. Uh, also, we'll be um, in uh, Ontario, Canada in September. So come and visit us there. Here are the dates for that. September 25th, 26th, 27th, and 28th, we'll be in Kitchener, Hamilton, Niagara Falls, and Kingston, Ontario. If you go on gregproops.com and look under Who's Live Anyway, you can come and see us 
Visit us on all of our improv gigs. We have a heck of a good time. And Bob Durkatch plays piano, so they're singing and dancing and Jack and Avery. And yes, we meet everybody afterward and sign autographs and take pictures. So if you're a Who's Line fan, you can come and see us on these dates and we will talk to you afterward. And by the way, Who's Line is going back into production again next year. We're going to shoot in January, March, and some other date. Uh, and yes, we're all back on again. All your friends, all your comedy Who's Line friends. The tall one, the bald one, the black one, the specky one, the other one, and the other one that you can't remember his name. <laughs> Uh, and then we'll be at this in October. Join us as we go back to Europe again um, for a sweep through the continent. Uh, we'll be in um, London at the Soho Theater on the 19th, which is a Sunday night. And then we're going to be at Arnbergerst, Arn, God damn it, Arnbergerstraat 28. <clears throat> in Antwerp, Belgium. You'll figure it out. Go to the website. And then we'll be at the Bonden Bar in Stockholm on the 24th. So that means we're going to be in Belgium and Sweden and England uh, coming up in October the 19th, 21st and 24th. So here's my suggestion to you. Don't email me and go, when are you coming to Holland? Because I'm going to be in Belgium. Don't email me and come and say, where are you going to be in Norway? I was in Norway last year and I already did Finland this year. So I'm trying to cover Scandinavia one country at a time. But I don't live in Stockholm. I live in Katanzaborg near where they shot the killing. Well, they didn't really shoot the killing there. But Henny Meinkel bought a candy bar there once. I'm not going to Cadenza 4. I'm going to Stockholm, okay? You're going to have to come down. For all my friends in Northern England, for all my friends in Southern England, you're going to have to come to London. I'm sorry. But why can't you come and visit us? I live in Newcastle. I live on Swansea. I live in Swindon. You're going to have to take the train in. I'm sorry. Thank you for your time. Then we'll be in Maui at the Maui Comedy Festival. But I live on Lanai. I live on the big island. You're going to have to take a little boat or a plane or a catamaran or a puff a puff a rice vehicle over there and jack lord your ass over to my side of the island, okay? We'll be at the Maui Comedy Festival the 29th through the 2nd. That's October 29th through November 2nd. Yes, it's over Halloween. Is there any place spookier than Hawaii? It's not really spooky, is it? I mean, there's bats, but it's not that spooky. It's pretty... I would, I would imagine Halloween's pretty low-key luau type affair there. I can't imagine anyone actually trying to scare you in Hawaii. Uh, oh, that, that pig is haunted. And then you look at the pig and it's like, stop me up. Stop me up. Stop. Oh my God, it's a 19 million year old pig. It's, it's belting out rock classics instead of foraging with its long, agile lips. Uh, then we'll be in Sacramento at the Punchline um, uh, the 20th of November through the 22nd. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're in Portland too, somewhere in there. Oh, Portland will get up on the website sooner or later. We're, I think we're in Portland in November as well. Then join us at the Bell House in Brooklyn, the 29th. That's right after Thanksgiving. Your hatred for your family will have consumed you at that point, and you'll be willing to leave your house and go to the irradiated dolphin neighborhood of Gowanus and join us at the Bell House in Brooklyn on the 29th. Um, then we will be at the Up uh, Comedy in Chicago, uh, right downtown. Right upstairs from Second City on the 10th of December. On the 13th, I'll be doing stand-up in Bloomington, Illinois. Come and visit us there. Then we'll be back in our beloved San Francisco for New Year's. We're going to do an extended week. Uh, it'll be the 30th uh, through um, the 3rd? No, through the 1st. The New Year's falls on a bizarre day this year. It's on like a Thursday. So we're going to do New Year's Eve Eve. Then we're going to do New Year's Eve. Then we're taking New Year's Day off. Then we're coming back and we're working two more days. So we're going to be there the whole week at the Punchline in San Francisco. Are you going to change the jokes from the last time I saw you? Hey, grow the fuck up. I don't know what time we're at now, but it might be time to... Oh, golly. All right. Well, a couple more and then we'll, we'll go. Thank you for visiting me. Uh, you can also buy the Musso and Frank's um, special. 
If you go to gregpoops.com, remember the podcast is free to download and the Musso and Frank special is $4.99 and it'll go on your phone or your computer or whatever device you're holding. Also, I think there's some t-shirts left. We haven't reordered yet, but they're coming. Uh, let's see. Terrible week. Uh, if you are a male rights advocate, let's put it this way. Um, this is really not the time for men to talk about how their rights are being trammeled because they can't go to Taco Bell and wear an M16 on their shoulder and carry a howitzer with them. This isn't the time to say she didn't know the meaning of the word shut up. You know what I'm saying? This is the time for fellas, what I've been talking about for years on this bloody podcast, we have got to pull it together right this instant and respect women immediately. And how do you respect women, Greg? By not beating the shit out of them and then expecting to get away with it. Um, not only expecting to get away with it, the legal system is construed so that you will get away with it. Here's a couple of items. Are you going to address the NFL? Yes, I am. And here's how I'm going to address the NFL. We've been talking about this for two fucking years on this show. Two years ago, uh, Jovan Belcher killed his girlfriend, Cassandra Perkins, and then went and shot himself in front of his coach. He played for the Kansas City Chiefs. If that didn't put you off of NFL football, I'm not certain what would. Was it the concussions? Was it the crappy $700 million settlement they tried to fob off on all the players who have brain damage? Was it the fact that they let poor referees uh, let other players be put in harm's way? Was it the fact that they raise the prices every year? Is it the fact that the owners are racist and that the owners of all basketball, uh, basketball football, baseball teams, you've heard it this week, um, the owner of the, uh, of the Hawks, the owner of the uh, Clippers, the um, owner of the Redskins, uh, not just racist, avowed on the fucking record racist, okay? How much more evidence do you need? But I like watching sports. Me too. Understand both things at once. Don't give them your money. Don't buy ancillary items from them. Don't buy the things that they sell on their TV programs. That is how you exert your power against the NFL. It is a giant cartel of billionaires who take money from municipalities, except for Green Bay, Everyone climb off my dick. I said the Green Bay violators last week. Of all the teams in the NFL, Green Bay is the only one that's owned by the public. Every other team is owned by a rich, privileged billionaire who has juked their community out of the money. They get tax breaks. They don't pay anything. They're terrible to the cheerleaders who are underpaid and sexually harassed. We haven't even got to the main point, which is the players are raised and trained in a culture of violence. Where they, and we know for a fact two seasons ago, were given bounties if they put people out of the game and injured them seriously. They are trained through uh, Pop Warner High School, College, and into the pros to put the hurt on other guys. That's what football is. It's not a general game of good, good for you, let me pull you up and pat you on the butt. It's a game of I want to put a spinal injury on you to get you out of the game because I want to win this fucking game. How do you expect people who are trained in that culture to behave any differently when they're off the field and they're taught that the solution to all their problems, not only that, their very livelihood depends on being able to put down people who fucking disagree with them. Now, are you expatiating the players for committing violence against women? I'm saying that this is systemic and endemic and that it's been bred into us to accept it. There's a story by... Ring Lardner called Champion and it's a story from the turn of the century about a boxer who beats the shit out of his family and leaves them to fucking go and has an illegitimate family and someone says well isn't it awful of him to do that and another guy goes he's champion and that's the way we look at sports in America uh, Ray McDonald who's on my beloved 49ers um, beat up his girlfriend he played last week 
It's not a matter of blaming the players anymore. It has to go further than that. Yes, the players are on the hook for the violence they commit against the people in their lives. Are they really on the hook for it? Think of all the people who've committed murder that are still in the NFL or that were around murder trials. Think of all the people in every sport that commit violence against women that they still get to play every week. The owners need to step up and be responsible for this. It is a suspendable offense for a year, is it, if you smoke marijuana? If you beat on your girlfriend or wife, two-game suspension. Now, what does that tell you about where the owners are coming from? I think it tells you fucking everything. And Roger Goodell is as complicit as anyone else, uh, and he is the commissioner of football. So if you want to have fun, and you still want to watch football, and you still want to root for your team, write Roger Goodell. Write the owners of your team. Write all the sponsors of the team that you watch. And tell them you're no longer going to watch or buy anything that they have to sell until they fucking pull their shit together and act like they've come into the 20th century. How so, Greg? This is from Salon.com from today. Ray Weiss was never going to jail. This is by Jenny Kuttner. Ray Weiss never went to jail for punching Janae Palmer in the face. He never would have, even if he weren't a public figure, and the assault was captured on camera. According to New Jersey prosecutors who have come out in defense of their handling of the criminal charges against Rice, the former Ravens running back would have faced either a two-year probationary sentence as a first-time offender or a 12-month pretrial intervention program. That's a PIT. Or a PTI, rather. Uh, in an interview, he was sentenced to the latter at his lawyer's request. In an interview with the Press of Atlantic City, Prosecutor Jim McLean, who's from uh, New Jersey... People need to understand the choice was not PTI versus five-year state prison. The choice was not PTI versus the No Early Release Act on the 10-year sentence. The parameters as they existed were, is this a PTI case or a probation case? There was no chance of him, even though it's on videotape and we know he did it, of him even facing jail at all. Do you understand that? Now, do you understand what I'm talking about when I say systemic? Women are not protected under the law. By assault or for rape or for any kind of violation. They are on their fucking own. McLean said the video would have been enough evidence without Rice to get a conviction at trial, even without Palmer's cooperation. But all that would have come after the headlines and the daily coverage would be a probationary sentence. All that would come after the daily coverage would be a probationary sentence. And this is what the lawyer Jim McLean says. The prosecutor, rather. It's not fair to the victim to put her through that when that was the difference. That's all he would have got was a probationary sentence. This is what uh, Prosecutor McLean said. I'm very glad people are repulsed by the video because this type of violence is an ugly, ugly thing. But the fact that this assault was on video makes it no more nor less any less ugly than those hundreds of domestic violence situations where similar violence was inflicted on a victim and it's not captured on videotape. Reality is reality, whether it's captured on videotape or not. And the reality of violence is that it is always ugly. I would think twice, that's all, about watching the uh, the NFL this season. And I know my Niners are going to be good. And I know we all love sport. But how much is enough? You know what I mean? How much is enough? Uh, huge congrats. This is from Alexandra from a site, a California website my wife sent me. The anti-violence uh, activist yesterday, this is from a week ago because we haven't gotten to it yet. The California state legislature passed a bill that would require affirmative consent on college campuses. That means when a couple is uh, hooking up in the dormitory or wherever it is, affirmative consent means yes, means yes. Do you understand what the ramifications of this are? This means women who are drunk, 
women who are compromised in some way because as you know women's sexuality is dazzling to men and it makes them turn their hats on backwards and Facebook everything that they do evidently men are so stupid that they actually have to have verbal confirmation that they're going to be allowed inside someone in order uh, well and that and that's the sad truth of it uh, let's see here uh, Kevin DeLeon of Democrat Los Angeles, the bill would be a paradigm shift in how California campuses prevent and investigate sexual assault. Because as you know, many of the colleges where the sexual assault has taken place, for instance, the Heisman Trophy winner from Florida, and I think Steubenville, Ohio is a case that's etched in all of our minds. They're real hesitant to prosecute because they don't want to ruin the boys' lives for raping women. You see, women's lives aren't that valuable, but men who can play football later professionally, their lives are super valuable. Men of any kind who can go on to do anything as men later are super more valuable than anything women do. Let's see here. Uh, rather than using refrain, no means no, the definition of the bill requires, quote, an affirmative conscious and voluntary agreement to engage in sexual activity. Uh, earlier this summer, it was written, um, the least we can do is ask each other. The next step, it seems to me, is expanding the standard beyond college campuses to at least all civil lawsuits for sexual assault. Hope, I don't know if Governor Brown has signed this yet, as of yet. Uh, this is Alexander Brodsky, Alexandra Brodsky from the website Feministing. Um, this is a, an, uh, from The Guardian, but you can read it in several different um, publications, the salon.com and whatnot. Emma Sulkowitz is one of 23 students who filed a federal complaint over Columbia's mishandling of sexual misconduct cases. Columbia is one of 67 schools facing such accusations. I spoke before about two schools and how hesitant and reticent they are to prosecute sexual violation cases. 67 schools are facing these accusations, accusations of mishandling sexual misconduct. Most students at Columbia will spend the first day carrying backpacks and books. Emma Selkowitz is starting her semester on Tuesday carrying a twin-size mattress across the quad and through each New York City uh, building to every class every day until the man she says raped her moves off campus. Now, you may have read about this. It's an amazing uh, thing and unbelievably courageous of uh, Ms. Selkowitz to do. I was raped in my own bed. Uh, I could have taken my pillow. But I want people to see how it weighs down a person to be ignored by the school administration and harassed by police. One of three women who made complaints to Columbia against the same fellow senior who was found not responsible in all three cases. She also filed a police report, but she was treated abysmally by the cops and by a Columbia disciplinary panel so uneducated about the scourge of campus violence that one panelist asked how it was possible to be anally raped without lubrication. This is the world we're living in. Don't write me and don't tweet me about their, how men's rights are being violated. I don't want to hear it. It's insipid and it's, uh, it's juvenile at this point. You understand that this is um, a performance case that she's doing uh, for, to make a very strong point. And after this week in the NFL, any last dudes who are still on the island who don't know what it is to be sexually assaulted, surely, surely, at this point, your peanut-like brain is cracked open and some glimmer of light has to mix a metaphor when peanuts crack open and light is let into them uh, that, that this is a serious issue. So California, uh, uh, Governor Brown is going to hopefully we sign, uh, sign the yes means less, yes law into um, enacting uh, here in California. Let's see. The feminist movement of the 70s shined a lot on date rape, the most common kind of sexual assault that once went ignored. It's now widely understood to be a pervasive problem. 21 years ago, marital rape was still legal in some states. Rape is still far too common. Approximately one out of every five women is sexually assaulted in college. Now, uh, people were talking about why didn't Ms. Uh, uh, Mr. Rice's uh, girlfriend leave him, Janelle, when 
uh, he beat her the first time. You have to understand in abuse cases, it's very difficult for women to get out of that situation. It's not a matter of, oh, I can just pack up and leave a lot of the time. People find themselves in particular situations where they're chained to the other person emotionally and legally and possibly uh, with children as well. So it's a very complicated situation for women. It's not as easy and cut and dried as glib people in the media would make you believe. So understand that. And if you're an insensitive type who insists on talking about rape and making light of it and being glib about it, understand that whenever you are, probably one out of five people in the room has experienced it. That, and I mean being raped or violated in some way, probably by a member of their family or someone they know. Um, and even more than that, I would say, because men don't talk about it as much, but it happens to men as well. And it even happens to people who aren't aware that anal rape can be happen without lubrication that sit on college disciplinary panels at a giant school called Columbia in New York, which is shocking beyond all measure. Uh, Halliburton is going to pay out a billion point one for the BP oil spill. You know, the one that killed the 11 oil workers. Um, and that destroyed uh, the environment of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, particularly New Orleans and Mississippi. Um, the plaintiff steering committee representing the spill victim said in a news release, there'll be two classes of plaintiffs to receive payments in settlement with Halliburton. Halliburton, as you know, has taken this long. By the way, it was April 2010. And now we're almost to the end of 2014. And they're finally going to pay out $1 billion. Do you understand how little $1 billion is to Halliburton? Do you also understand that Dick Cheney, yes, the former president of the United States, was CEO of Halliburton and removed himself of that post when he was leading the steering committee to choose a vice presidential candidate, uh, candidate and he chose himself. Understand the interconnecting and interlocking boards of directors that run all the corporations in the United States that are connected to the U.S. government that run the war machine and the oil company machine. The reason why there's never any peace and the reason why reparations are never made on these hideous fucking malfeasance and malconduct, misconduct that the companies get up to is because of this. Um, the people who sit on the boards are friends with the people who run for government. The people who uh, pay the super PACs and the people who give money uh, to the people who are running for elections are bought and sold by vested corporate interests. Uh, but doesn't that include all the people that I like too? Some of them. Some of them. Yeah, it fucking does. It would behoove you to do a little bit of research every once in a goddamn while. What I was getting at was this. Halliburton fussed and kicked and fought and drew, uh, drew this out through an epic legal wrangle in the court, uh, ran full-page ads in the USA Today and lots of different publications complaining about how there were frivolous lawsuits against them and things like that. Really? Do you think the vast comprehensive ocean of frivolous lawsuits against you even dips into $1.1 billion when you consider that 11 human lives are taking because of the malfeasance of the horrible fucking way that Halliburton was drilling and that uh, uh, British Petroleum is absolutely responsible for the death of the ecosystem, of, uh, which is precarious at best, uh, in the Gulf off of New Orleans. Wouldn't it be okay if they were punished? Wouldn't it be okay if they were forced to clean up? Really, what would it hurt if a giant corporation had to take a big hit money-wise? Um, oh, it would hurt their profit margin. And that we can't have because they're responsible to stockholders. And as you know from watching the news, the news goes like this. First, there's a local story. Then there's a national story. Then there's a world story like Obama talking about uh, having no strategy against the Islamic State. Then that's followed by um, a kitten got leukemia and, and fell out of a tree into a, a basket of daisies. Then that's followed by, I wouldn't want to be this guy. This guy's gonads weigh 400 pounds. Then it's followed by uh, nothing. 
uh, weather, which doesn't even deserve to be on the news because you could cover weather in 20 seconds by someone going, it's going to be sunny tomorrow, except in this area. Then it's followed by sports because sports is a giant corporate entertainment complex owned by white billionaires. Then business news. When do you ever watch the news that they don't talk about the Standard and Poor Index, the Nikkei, uh, 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 the the Dun and Bradstreet, everything that's important to Wall Street. Does that affect you in your life in a daily basis? Do you have so much money in stocks and investments that when you look at the Standard and Poor and it went down two points because uh, uh, such and such company has to pay out, uh, um, you know, uh, reparations in an oil spill. Does that affect your life? I don't think it does. I think for the most of us, we watch the business news like the Matrix, just green numerals running up and down a wall. It means nothing to us. But understand, that's why it's in the news every day, because it means quite a lot to the icky uh, men that run the fucking thing. But there's some women CEOs. Don't be pathetic. Seriously. Individuals and business owners are already part of the BP economic and property damages settlement and make up one class. BP is responsible for paying out claims in its multi-billion dollar settlement reached in 2012 in federal court. Under the settlement, blah, blah, blah. Uh, those class members who do not have to be part of the larger BP... Here we, here we go. Uh, these are the attorneys from some of the plaintiffs, Stephen Herman and James P. Roy. Halliburton stepped up to the plate and agreed to provide a fair measure of compensation to people and businesses harmed in the wake of the Deepwater Horizon tragedy. Nothing will bring back the 11 dead people, will it? Or the lives that are all ruined, or all the dead fish and birds and whatnot, or all the oysters that you'll never get to eat because they poured oil on them and shit like that. Let's move on. By the way, we're high in the middle of the boring preachy part here. <laughs> I think you might have figured that out by now. Uh, we think we've gone uh, far enough. We have plenty to talk about next week, and we'll join you in Raleigh in North Carolina, and uh, we hope to see you there. Until then, I want you to remember, and I'm going to read it again, even though it's so boring. Aren't you going to talk about uh, what's going on in Ukraine? Aren't you going to talk about what's going on in the Middle East? I'll say this about the Middle East. We created this situation by jumping in to several illegal wars against sovereign nations that were doing nothing against us. You can look at the list of uh, nations uh, in the Central Asian theater that have supported terrorism over the years. And you can look at the list of our allies and you'll find that they're almost one and the same. Our most staunch ally and the one we sell the most arms to and the one that we share uh, so much with is Saudi Arabia. Now, you may remember that there were lots of Saudi Arabians on the plane uh, that was on 9-11. Not so many Iraqis or even any Iraqis. And, oh, well, Greg, but by using that, aren't you using the circular logic that you always accuse us of making? You're saying that a, a football player beat a guy, therefore all football players are wife beaters. No, I'm saying that we protect our interests. And what are our interests? The interest of rich people. And that means oil and armament. We sell armament for profit. We sell oil for profit. Saudi Arabia is the largest oil producing country in the world. If that doesn't make any sense to you in light of what's going on in the Middle East, then I leave it to you to sort it out. But how do you mean, Greg? We started a war against Iraq, the second largest oil producing uh, uh, country in that area. We disrupted their government. We threw out the supposed dictator who was so bad for them, leaving a giant void. And even though we train the Iraqi forces, you've seen that the Islamic State, which, by the way, is not supported by other governments in the Middle East, is not even supported by other um people in the Middle East, much less Muslims, and I would not speak for, the, uh, for all of Islam in any case. Understand this about the Islamic State. They're misogynist. Um, they're 
unbelievably rapacious. They're paying for this run through Iraq and Syria by stealing people's property, by going into villages and putting people to the sword and threatening them uh, that they must convert to their brand of Islam. They're also stealing antiquities and selling them off. They're doing as much as stealing people's cars and selling them off. Understand that about this lot. This is not an army with a government that you negotiate with. This is not something that you can bomb into submission. This is not something that boots on the ground will support. This is a complex situation that's going to take years to extricate from, and it's going to require deep cooperation from all of the countries that I mentioned before, particularly Pakistan, where you, you'll find that Osama bin Laden was living when we finally ran him to ground, and Saudi Arabia, who has all the money and a giant giant armed forces that they could bring to bear in this conflict to keep us from having to put more people in harm's way there. In my opinion, the whole thing's been a mistake since the start and that everyone who uh, was injured and died in these horrible wars we've been fighting over there, and by horrible wars, I mean the ones America got people to help them fight, is an insane tragedy. And the only way to to, um, make it better is to take the long view And that's that war in and of itself is not necessary unless you're a rich person who wants to keep this stuff going. The chaos that's happening in the Middle East is not going to make any country better. The complexity of trying to defy Assad in Syria and then finding at this late date that we're going to have to be on his side if we want to stop the Islamic State is a mind-numbing, Orwellian, fucking Mobius Strip reverse roller coaster into the illogic of how everything is conducted in this United States of ours. We're not on the moral side of right. So don't believe it when they tell you that we are. And who do you mean by they, Greg? Anyone in the government. I mean from Obama to the Republican senators to Fox News to me. Moral right means you're doing right sometimes, occasionally. Uh, and not conducting the kind of nonsense that we're conducting. A country that predator drones people and has a torture camp and started two illegal wars and then leaves the world in this state 10 years down the line has a lot to answer for. Gajan, uh, Gajanan Mishra, abandon all varieties of religion and live in peace. Go with the supreme truth and live in peace. It is like watering the root of a tree. Give love and live in peace and see everything all right. Wait not for the result. Go on performing your own duties and live in peace. Peace, peace, and peace. It is in you, my dear. Please see. You've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. This is Greg Hoops wishing you nothing but love. May every page that you turn be a satchel.